0: So we are in a series called The Walking Dead, and uh, part of it is because I love zombies and you just have to deal with it, and part of it is that, honestly, there's a question that's kind of driving this series, and the question that that we're asking is, why in the world, when we open up the scriptures and we look at the movement of Jesus throughout human history, we get these pictures of these people who are just on fire, they're just this unquenchable fire uh, for the Lord, for Jesus, for living for Jesus, for, for making an impact in this world, and they were just willing to go all in and commit themselves to all of it, why, why do we see that there? And then we look around here in kind of the Western world, the states, the church, and a lot of people who would say, I'm a Christian, are more walking dead than they are running free. Or they're not characterized by that life, by that passion, by that purpose, by that fire. But more oftentimes just kind of going through the motions. And for those of us as individuals, why in the world is it such a struggle for us? Right? Why is it getting your, your, your hands around that kind of a life and that kind of a passion? Why is it a struggle? So that's the question that we're, we're asking. And two weeks ago, we started to, we're introducing some answers. And we're going to kind of be digging into this for the rest of the month of June. And, and one of the things that we're, at, we're, we're starting to, to ask, okay, or begin to answer is, why possibly, what, what are some of the reasons for this? And two weeks ago, we introduced this idea of story and one of the suggestions that I made is I don't know that all of us really fully understand the story that we are a part of. And it's the story that God is writing in human history. It is where creation, all of creation, is going. And we have a role to play in that. Right? And two weeks ago, specifically, what we looked at is that there are characters who are part of our story uh, that we tend to over, overlook and that we don't really want to own. And specifically, uh, that character is, is the enemy of our story, and that's Satan. Right now, I know that I just lost a good chunk of you, <laughs> whether you 're here whether you 're listening to the podcast, uh, because we struggle a lot with this idea of Satan as good Americans right who who value science, who value reason, who value um, measurable uh, you know concrete measurability I mean we just we struggle with this uh, a lot, and so like you know statistically if you 're stop people on the street, most people will tell you here in the states uh, you know, as much as perhaps ninety percent, according to some surveys, would say, "Yeah, I believe in God in some way, shape, or form." We'll disagree on the details, but there's some kind of higher power, some kind of whether you call him Allah, whether you call him Jesus, whether you, they're just holy cumulonimbus clouds, whatever that is. I believe that it's there, that He is there. Uh, most people tell you that, right? But very few people will will own Satan. Right? We we struggle we struggle deeply with this idea. And somebody sent me actually a great quote that I totally forgot. They're like, you know what that totally reminded me of is the Usual Suspects. Right? Kevin Spacey has a great line in that movie, and he says, "The greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist." Great quote. And I would say right on the money. And so here's the thing: I know that we have a bunch of skeptics here because uh, this is Mosaic, and I love that. That's a win for us, right? You're like, I don't know, kind of <laughs> what I think about Jesus, let alone Satan and his demons, uh, but I pushed back a little bit, right? Now, I think part of the problem, too, is, is just culturally, Satan is like, don't you just kind of conjure up, like, caricatures, images from pop culture that just make it really hard to take seriously, right? So, like, for example, here's one, <laughs> right? Which I think that has a striking resemblance to Nick Fargo, our banjo player, um, <laughs> right? But it kind of picks up imagery of, like, uh, this guy in red tights and a pitchfork, right? That, that people dress up Halloween and pretend to do whatever. You know, or, you know, another great example. All right, Seth Park. Right? And, and it's like just this laughing. When we think about Satan, it's just like, okay, Aaron, you seem like a somewhat intelligent guy. You cannot tell me you believe in this crap. Right? And I don't think the Christian community has helped either. You know, because we do things like this. <laughs> if anybody's looking for a nice back tattoo, there you go. Um... <laughs> You know, but it's like, really, this is how we're going to frame this? Like, Jesus, you know, the best arm wrestling champion. I, well, I don't know. It's just ridiculous, right? And so we struggle with this idea. So I pushed back a little bit two weeks ago. And so there's some things, though, when we, when we think about this, that, that even if you're a skeptic, even if you say you already you've in some sense written me off, you've got to at least consider the possibility that Satan exists. And I say that. Because they're like, for, for one, if you were to travel the rest of the world and most parts of the rest of the world, many people will tell you, educated people, civilized people will tell you that this, this idea that there are both spiritual forces of good and spiritual forces of evil is something that they believe and it helps them make sense of the world. Right? And these are not just simple people we're talking about, uncivilized people. Most of the rest of the world will tell you that. But we as Americans, we just kind of shudder at that idea. Like that's just an insult to our intelligence, Right, so you have to at least consider the possibility that you're being a little bit arrogant if you're willing to say, right, those who are educated and wise from other parts of the world have nothing to teach me. Right, also, you have to consider the possibility right, if you're a person who says, yeah, I believe that some kind of God exists, or, you know, we might disagree on the details, but I believe in some spiritual force of good, but you don't believe in spiritual force of evil, you have to at least consider the fact that there's, there's some real inconsist- inconsistency there. So intellectually, you've got to ask some hard questions about what you believe. Also, we looked at the fact that Jesus himself said that, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning to the earth. When God cast him from the heavens along with the legions of angels who rebelled. I saw that. So if you're a person who says, I believe in Jesus, or even a person who says, I really like Jesus. I'm not following him yet, but if things keep going the way they are, maybe one day I will be. If that's you, you have to wrestle with this. What do we do with this? Are you really going to say, you know what, Jesus had some good things to say over here, but he was crazy on this one issue. I'm I'm just going to cherry pick what I believe because he has nothing to teach me about this. It just picks up, brings up some hard, hard questions we have to ask of ourselves. And the big idea that I pitched as well is I would suggest, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, but even if you're not, is that you're going to struggle to make sense of your life if you reject this idea of spiritual forces of evil outright. You're going to. We looked at culturally how even in the intellectual spheres, right, there are scholars who are saying, look, we don't have, with our intellectual resources, writing off evil in the world as just bad psychological adjustment and bad sociological development is no longer holding water. It's growing thin because evil continues. No matter how much we progress, it's still there. And what's going to happen in your individual life is if you don't at least wrestle with this and consider this, you're going to come face to face with it. In your own heart, in your own family, in your own life. At times it's going to result in disappointment and failure and heartache. And either you're going to blame yourself, or you're going to blame other people, or you're going to blame God. And none of those answers are going to bring you any satisfaction, I would suggest. Alright, so we talked about that at length last week, and if you weren't there for it, I'd encourage you to listen to the podcast. But this morning, what I promise to do is to make this very, very personal. Alright, if there is a Satan... If he does have legions at his disposal who want to steal from us the life that is possible in Jesus and want to see us live a meaningless, empty life, how did he come at us? All right, so we looked at a passage of Scripture here uh, in Ephesians chapter 6. I want to look at again briefly, kind of frame this discussion. And this is what it, it says, beginning in verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Right, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Right? And So there's two kind of key words I want to hone in on just to frame this discussion. And one, right, Paul is pleading with us, we can't miss this. He says the reason is so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Right? Now, in the Greek, this word schemes comes in th- from the Greek word methodia. That's right? where we get the word method. Right? And what it means is strategies. Right? So the imagery here is that, G- that, that Satan has an arsenal in which he comes at us. He doesn't come at us head on. He doesn't always come at us in the same way. He's got an arsenal, and he comes at us uh, using different strategies. Right? The second word that I want to look at is actually just the word for devil itself. Right, the, it comes from the, the Greek word um, <clears throat> diablos, Diabolos, which is, of course, where we get the word diabolical. Right, so when we hear the word diabolical, I don't know what injures that, or images that conjures up for you, but I think of like, just pure evil. I think of destruction. I think of hate. Right, but that's not, that's not really what it, what it means in the Greek. In the Greek, uh, the word literally means, when it's talking about the devil, the most common word for devil, literally means to lie and to slander to lie and to slander, right? So this is the way that Satan comes at us. His name literally means to lie. And we are way too skeptical on this. Already, I, there's skepticism in the air. I can feel it. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, when's lunch? Right, because we don't think the devil's involved, right, unless somebody's head is spinning around and their face is green and they're vomiting, right? Like exorcist kind of stuff. Right? But it says this is the way that he works. It doesn't work that way. Please, you see that, <laughs> anything like that, you're going to be on your knees in prayer so fast. It's counterproductive. He says he comes at us with lies. It's the way that he works. Right? As one author puts it, Satan doesn't leave fang marks in your neck. He leaves lies in your heart. Right? So Jesus actually spoke to this uh, multiple times, but very clearly, John eight forty four. 44. He's talking about Satan. He says, when Satan lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. So there's a, a book written by a guy named John White, who was a Christian counselor a number of years ago, and he said, this is the way that Satan works. Um, if you think about a piano, you know, I grew up in a home where my mom was always giving piano lessons, so we always had a piano propped up and being used. And if you picture a piano, right, and you open up the top of it and you see all of those, all of those chords in there, and you sing into that piano, what you're going to find is at least one of those strings is going to begin to vibrate. Right? And it's letting you know that's, that's the pitch, right? That's the note that you're singing. If you're like me, you have no idea what note you're singing. Right? But there is a note. And, and if you sing in the piano, that note's going to begin to vibrate. And, and what he's saying is this, is this is how Satan works. right? He doesn't have to touch you. What he does is he sings into the strings that are there, already in your heart. And he resonates those lies, that brokenness that is already in you. Right? see, so Satan can't make... Good people bad. What he makes is bad people worse. He speaks into that, that brokenness, that place where you're particularly vulnerable, where you're particularly weak, and he whispers in and just reaffirms those lies that you're already telling yourself, already buying into, and he doesn't even have to touch you. He just sings into the strings. So, what I want to do is, I want to look specifically at some ways in which he does this, right? And so, like, so just, just to kind of flesh this out, just real quick, like biblically, this is why a little bit earlier in Ephesians, Right, It says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Right, don't give the devil a foothold. Right, why does it say that? Well, it's because if there's anger in your heart, and you're refusing to forgive. It doesn't just go away, does it? Right, if you've ever had somebody who's deeply hurt you, you know this to be true. If you don't actively forgive them and invite Christ to heal that part of your heart, it just festers. It just sits. Right, what's it's saying is the dagger is already set. What Satan does is he just wiggles it a little bit. He just speaks to that that anger that's already there, and he begins to and over time, right, that ter- begins to turn into bitterness, uh, and resentment, and boy, the beautiful thing is, right, you start to you start to direct that, don't you? Oftentimes, it gets directed at other people, or you direct it at yourself, or you direct it at God. Sometimes all three, right? Which is, which for him is a, is a win-win-win. There's also like for example in First Timothy three. He right, says, look, don't take a new believer within the church and put him in a primary place of leadership. Right, don't do that. Because what's going to happen is before God does, if God doesn't do a work in here first, right, that person might become prideful and conceited and fall into the snare of the devil. Right, and so what he's saying is, he man, that's all it takes is a little bit of pride. That's all you need. And then he starts to work and he starts to sing into those strings. Because right, young, talented leaders, right, they have a soft spot for pride. Right? When you see somebody in the church that's a like brand new believer, oh, he's got potential. Look, he's got such clear leadership gifts. Right? Those guys, they tend to have a weak spot for pride, and that's all it takes. What Satan starts to whisper is, man, you are talented. Why aren't you leading yet? Boy, the things you could accomplish. That person up there, that person over there, they have no idea what they're doing. They need to get their act together. You're the one that deserves that. And that's what just, Satan just singing into the strings all right, so let's personalize this a little bit. <clears throat> Biblically, there's kind of two, two categories. Two categories that, that Satan often uses, right? And one is temptation, and the other is accusation. Two categories of lies. All right, so in temptation, essentially what he does is he gives you a very uh, high inflated view of yourself and a very low view of God. All right, so he starts to play up the love card. All right, God is so loving. God is so gracious, so good. Just go ahead and do it. He's got to forgive you. It's his job. He's God. Just go for it. When right? he hides from you God's holiness, he hides from you how much God hates sin and plays up the love. Gives you this inflated view of yourself, relatively low view of God. Right? That's temptation. On the accusation side, it's very different, but it works in the same way. It's the same goal. And what he does in accusation is he gives you a very high view of God. right? And so he really... It just highlights God's holiness, God's wrath, how much God does in fact hate sin. But then He gives this, you this very low view of yourself, this almost self, self-hating view, and He just crushes you, right? And just discourages you and steals the life right from your heart, right? And this one, by the way, is particularly effective in religious circles. I see it all the time, right? This is why, if you grew up in church. Especially if you're like me and probably many in this room who maybe grew up going to church at some point, but you bailed at some point. Oftentimes this has a lot to do with this. Because this is going on. Right? Just that judgmental legalism. Right? Just crushes you. Both with the goal, the goal of both is to get you to do what you shouldn't be doing, right? Or to not do what you should. So there's a book written by a seventeenth century Puritan uh, named Thomas Brooks, and it's called uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he's got like 50, 60, 70 ways that Satan comes at us. It's like crazy, a lot of them. And, and in the book, he's basically trying to do what uh, you know, C.S. Lewis, when he wrote screw tape letters, anybody read the screw, chief, screw tape letters? Yeah, a number of you? Okay. Um, <clears throat> he's basically doing the same thing in a non fictional format. And when he's saying, this is how the enemy comes at us. And so what I've done is I've taken uh, about seven from the temptation category uh, that I actually pulled from a guy named Tim Keller. Um, and then another four from the accusation c- category. And here's, here's my prayer, okay? My prayer, my hope, as we go through this, is that at least one is going to hit you right between the eyes. And then you're going to have the light bulb moment where you're like, oh, yeah. Hopefully probably more than one. But my hope is that it will knock you in your butt and, be like, and you'll realize, even though maybe you haven't seen it until now for what it is, that you're under attack. You're caught in the crossfire. And the whole strategy of the enemy is to remain hidden. All right? And so the skepticism you're hearing right now in your ear, if you could, for a moment, hit a Zach Morris timeout for the next 15 minutes (laughs) and listen. All right? So here, starting with the the temptation category, number one. He shows you the bait and hides the hook. Shows you the bait and hides the hook. You know this one, right? Right? He shows you that thing. It's like, ah, so good. I want that so bad, right? Even if just for a moment, right? But what he hides from you is, boy, you play this out, you do this, it's a little bit first, and you continue down this road, what it'll do to your life, right? For example, I've never met a single addict who ever planned on becoming an addict, ever. Nobody plans on shipwrecking their life. And an honest addict will tell you they hate the very thing that they're addicted to, the thing that they now think they need. They hate it. Right, start out small. they saw the bait, didn't see the hook. All right It starts out the same way for all of us. very small. Nobody plans on shipwrecking their life. Just a little bit, a little bit. I know I shouldn't do this, but number two <clears throat> by getting you to rationalize sin as virtue, right? So this sounds a lot like i'm not really greedy I'm thrifty I'm smart, you know or uh, my heart is not really ruled by the need to be in control at all times. I'm just careful. I'm not really nosy. I'm not a gossip. I'm not a slanderer. I'm just concerned. Right? I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just sociable. Right? just like to have a good time. What's wrong with liking people? Right? Have you ever had this thought? There are so many worse things I could be doing. You know? Boy, if I was doing this instead of that, boy, I would really hurt people. At least I'm just doing this. Ever hear that one? Yeah? Just rationalizing sin. It's common. Common strategy. Number three, this is a big one too. By showing the sins of Christian leaders. And man, this one is effective. And sadly, us Christian leaders give him plenty of opportunity to do this. We had a on our volunteer staff retreat last week, and I, I shared some pretty grim statistics about pastors in the States, and uh, it's pretty rough. Truth be known, pastors in general are not doing very well uh, in the States, and I mean, they are it's crazy stats, and I won't share them all with you, but, but statistically, most pastors are just stressed out beyond what is healthy. It's affecting most pastors' health in a negative way. Most spouses say their job negatively affects both their family and their husband. Uh, most of their families are just in rough shape in general. Their kids aren't doing well. Their marriages aren't doing well. Half of pastors' marriages will end in divorce. Fifty percent. Crazy. Right. And, and so we talked about perhaps some of the reasons for this. I think there's some very real reasons for this. And so we talked at length about just our model of church and how broken it is. Uh, it's one of the reasons that we are ushering in this, this volunteer staff to try to flip the script and change what is very broken and very destructive. Right, that's part of it. But the other part of this, and this is relevant for every one of us, is you've got to know the moment that you align yourself with Jesus, you become a target. Right, the moment that you try to step into the life that you've been created to live and be a light in the darkness, that darkness is going to do everything it can to swallow you up to take you out of the game. And the bigger the pedestal or the more potential for influence, the bigger the target. you got to know that. Right? And so pastors are a big target. because, Boy, if you can take a pastor out and get him to do something stupid, destructive, that calls into question the very message that he claims to believe in, man, he can affect a lot of people in short time. Right? So I've got a good friend of mine Who committed his life to Christ when he was in college here uh, in Lincoln and got married to a really gifted gal uh, who went into ministry, became a pastor. And they, along with his campus pastor who led him to Christ when he was in college, they moved out to the Pacific Northwest, uh, I think it was downtown Seattle, and planted a church. And the story of their church is pretty similar to the story of Mosaic. I mean, this thing was blowing up, growing very quickly, lots of really cool stories of life change. Lots of people committing their lives to Christ who didn't grow up in church, who wouldn't consider themselves to be church people. And the thing is blowing up. And then in the midst of it, a couple years in, while this thing is just taken off, uh, all of it came to a screeching halt. And it came out that his wife and the senior pastor who had led him to Christ were having an affair. And both of them decided to leave their families, uh, divorced my good friend, he left his kids and wife, and they ran off to Southern California together. Now this is not... This is a common story, right? And a lot of you know that. Right? Way too many of these. But guess, just to illustrate this, what do you think happened to all those new believers in that church? Right? All those people who for the, maybe the first time in their life, God was doing something really cool, really exciting in their life. How many of them do you think went and looked for another church? Any? Maybe a few? Right now, they were violated at the deepest level. Trust broken. And then the whispers came, right? Those doubts that you had, you see? That's for a reason. This is all a sham. It's fake. They don't even believe what they claim to believe. Right? Get out while you still can. And this happens over and over and over. It's not just pastors. Right? This is true of every one of us. You align yourself with Jesus. You get baptized up here? Better be Ready? Commit your life to Christ. Start to live a life that matters. You've got a big target on your back. Big target. So what does Satan do? He just keeps highlighting the fallen. As if that's the normal thing. It's very effective. Number four. By overstressing the mercy of God. So you say to yourself, or you hear in your ears, just just do it. God will forgive you. After all, he is loving. He kind of has to. It's his job. Right, I would say in a community like Mosaic, this is probably our tendency. Right? Where other communities may be more, you know, you just pound it, fire and brimstone. Right? I think in a community like Mosaic where we are unapologetic about God's grace, and it's true, um, I think there's probably a tendency to fall into this because in a in a place like this where we're trying to just create a safe space for everybody to belong and to, to be loved and seek out Jesus on their own time and for God to do a work on his own time. It's also the kind of environment where lazy, selfish Christians can come in and just sit, right? And hear and listen, decide they're just gonna listen to the grace message, God loves me, the good news. But they miss the fact that it's only good news in contrast to the deep darkness that is in our own heart and what we really deserve, right? And so they come and they sit and they're walking dead Right? And Satan just keeps playing the mercy card, trying to get him to, to do things they shouldn't do that ultimately are leading them where they don't want to go. Number five. By making you resentful, or by making you bitter over suffering. Right? Another way to put this is, is by making you bitter or resentful uh, over the sacrifices you're making. Right? Right? And so you're, you're sacrificing, you're trying to do the right thing, Right, and you're not really getting ahead, and something starts here. Right, you got strings, and he starts whispering, like nobody knows how hard you work. Nobody knows how much you sacrifice. You deserve this. Nobody knows how hard this is for you. Right, this, by the way, is one of the reasons you see so many prominent leaders, Christians or no, run off and have an affair, have affairs. Right, even when they're married to supermodels. Right, stress beyond belief, and the whisper comes, man, you deserve this. Nobody knows how hard you have it. Nobody knows how much you've given up. Number six, kind of close to number five. By showing Christians how many bad people seem to be having great lives. I call this the Paris Hilton syndrome. <laughs> right? And so this is, this is like m- a lot of reality television, except especially like the sexy, dramatic ones. Right? So you watch the Paris Hiltons, or you can insert any number of names there. And they make t- these decisions that are like just horrible decisions, Right? over and over and over again, right? And relationships fall apart, people are hurt, tapes make the rounds online, and the more scandalous it is, right, the the more awful the decisions, the higher their profile. And the celebrity grows, right? So while we can poke fun and and laugh at Paris Hilton, then sure, we can do that, I do that. Um, You can judge me for that, that's good. The truth is, they're a celebrity and you're not. The truth is, they have a lot, she has a lot of money. And some of us are just struggling to pay bills and make it. Right? And so that that, that voice, that whisper comes in, what gives? Really? You're going to keep doing this? Obviously, being the nice guy doesn't pay off. You can cut this corner. Everybody is cutting corners. Right? If you want to be successful, that's what you got to do. Just do it. Nobody will ever know. And then number seven, by getting you to compare one part of your life to another. Right? So you say to yourself, look, I'm, I know I'm, I shouldn't do this over here, but man, I'm doing good over here. Right? It's kind of like a funny example, uh, you know, mafia hitmen. Right? You just kind of justify what you do. It's like, man, I'm, I'm so good to my mom. I really take care of my family. It's like, yeah, I kill people, but it's because I'm really good to my mom right? And so for us, it's like some examples of that. So I drink too much consistently, but man, I'm really seeking to serve God in this area of my life, right? Or man, you know, I, I, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but, but I'm really growing in generosity. I mean, I've never, I've never given this much money to a charitable cause. Right? I, I know I shouldn't be in this relationship. I know I'm wasting so much time Doing these meaningless activities and spending virtually no time in prayer or in the scriptures. I know that I should start serving my husband or my wife. Right. Any number of things. I know that I should I should invite Jesus into this and I need to confess this. But man, I'm just doing so good over here. God understands. So I'm just gonna keep doing this. All right, you get the point, right? Those, and those are just seven common ones. Right. And I bet if we could sit down and have coffee, we would probably all agree, man, he's really good at what he does. Because right, there's a number of those that resonate with me. And I see a lot of this going on in here. All right? So those are seven from the temptation category. And I want to give you just four uh, from the accusation category. Here are just four from the, from the accusation arsenal. Number one, by causing us to look more at our sin than at our Savior. All right, so I'm, I'm a dad of two little girls. I love being a dad. And you read parenting books... And and they'll just straight up tell you that that if you give your child one compliment for every criticism, that child will grow up hating themselves. It is not a one-to-one. In fact, they'll tell you that you need to give that child probably four, even five compliments for every one criticism if they're going to be remotely healthy. Because the compliments don't stick. But there's something about the criticisms that do. Right, so biblically, there's a reason for this. Biblically, the reason is that you and I, we are broken on our own. And there's a part of us that knows it. And often it results in insecurity and all types of things. So when it comes to pride and, and all these different things, oftentimes we're just trying to overcompensate from what we feel inside that is broken within us. All right, so I bet if we could compare notes, I bet we, you would agree with me that there's probably been times in your life when you've received any number of compliments, but you have a hard time remembering them. But I guarantee one, two, three times you can name off the top of your head when somebody said something to you that was so hurtful and has followed you for years and you don't really know why. All right, this is just the way that it works. And so the idea is it's, it's the same way with sin. It's like if we just take one look at God for every look at our sin, we're just going to be crushed. And all of a sudden we are very, very prone to just be crushed under accusation and the lies that are coming at us. We need to take four, five. Maybe more looks at our Savior and how good He is, and what the Scriptures actually say about how He feels about us. For every one, look at our sin. Number two, and by the way, Satan's going to do everything he can to make sure that doesn't happen. Number two, by causing Christians to obsess over past sins that have done damage that can't be done. Right, and this is a sticky one. All right, because here's the truth: like we talk about Jesus. We talk about the gospel and the forgiveness and the grace that is offered us in Jesus. But there's still consequences to our actions, right? right? And so there's things that we've done in the past, and the consequences of those actions, they follow us beyond the cross. Some of them, they follow us for the rest of our lives. Right? The scars don't just go away. But what Satan wants to do is he wants to make sure that those wounds stay open. Right? That the healing that is, that is possible in Jesus never takes place. Right, and so he keeps pointing back to mistakes that you made so long ago, mistakes that are covered by the blood of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. And he just keeps accusing you with them. Right, look at what you've done. It is all your fault. If you were really a good husband, if you were really a good daughter, if you were really a good mother, if you were really a Christian, Right? If God really loved you, if you really loved God, that never would have happened, it is all your fault. Look at the mess you've created. Those are lies. Those are lies. The consequences remain sometimes, but the forgiveness is total. It's paid for. All right, So we've got to keep looking at our Savior again. Number three. By making Christians think that the troubles they are going through must be punishments. Right, very effective in religious circles. So God is presented as this angry, disappointed father. Man, he's so unhappy with you. You screwed up again. No surprise to God. All right, look at the mess you've created for yourself. The punishment's going to keep on coming. You deserve it. It's what God's doing here. He wouldn't be doing this if he wasn't punishing you. right? Lies. But boy... When we're vulnerable in this area, man, they'll sting. And they're hard to shake. But you got to recognize them for what they are. And then lastly, number four. <clears throat> by making people think that the inner struggles and feelings they have, Christians couldn't possibly have. Right? So if you were a real Christian, this was real. You wouldn't feel this. You wouldn't struggle with this. All right, just to confess to you, like this is mine. This is my string. Right? especially since I've become a pastor, the verbiage has just changed a little bit. But I hear these constantly, almost daily. So for me, they sound a lot like, wow, you still struggle with doubt sometimes, and you call yourself a pastor. Hmm. You don't enjoy counseling people? Boy, if you're a real pastor, you're supposed to care for people, right? You feel more comfortable in bars than you do in most churches? You know why that is? Because you don't fit. All right, you're lost. You're faking it. You still get nervous when you preach? Really? So you still don't know how to trust God and even something as ineffective as preaching. Why don't you sit down? Why don't you shut up? You have nothing to say. And you know what? The sooner that you realize that you weren't cut out for this, the better off everyone will be. Lies, but I hear them every week almost on a daily basis. And for you, it might sound a little bit different, but very similar. You still struggle to spend time in prayer, and you call yourself a Christian? You have to fight to spend 15 minutes in the Bible? Really? Wow. Okay. Okay. Who do you think you're fooling? You're still struggling with doubts. You do know that if you really believed, you would not have those feelings ever that lust thing is still hanging around why are you even trying or are you even trying you should have beaten this by now or if this whole thing was real or you really believed it if you were the real thing it wouldn't be a struggle you're such a failure just give up I mean just look at how prideful you are look at how selfish you are look how lazy you are listen you tried the Christian thing you gave it a real go clearly it didn't take it's time for something different Right? Any of those ring a bell? So lies. Lies, lies, lies. And the accusations keep on coming. Right? If you recognize any of them, you just you have to know he's playing you. Right? He's singing into your strings. You gotta recognize it. Because it's not gonna stop until you do. So what do we do with this? Right? How do we fight? How do we how do we deal with this in a way that's successful, effective? Right, first of all, you've got to do the work to know your strings. Right? And this is why it's so important for us to own this and realize this. Because if you don't, I mean, you're like a soldier fighting in the fog. You have no idea what you're swinging at. You don't know where the fight's coming from. Right? And so go back through this list. Right? They're online. Do the hard work. Figure out where you're vulnerable. Where are you weak? What are your strings? Where's he playing you? Right, and then secondly... Lastly, you've got to learn how to put on the gospel and fight back. Right? When I use the word gospel, what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done and who you are in his eyes, for those of us who are in Christ. Right? And the gospel looks accusations straight in the face. It says, yeah, it owns some of it. It's like, yeah, you know what? There is some truth to that. I am broken. I am flawed. I sin. I mess up. Guess what? It's all paid for. All of it's paid for. In fact, that's the whole message of the Bible. That's the whole gospel itself. That's why Jesus came. Because of this. Because I am not perfect, but Jesus was. Because I am oftentimes not even good, but Jesus is. And I am his. I am his redeemed. And in his eyes, on the other side of the cross, I am a saint. I am completely righteous. I am his adopted son, his adopted daughter. So Satan, you have nothing to throw at me yeah, keep pointing out my faults. I own them fully because Jesus owned them fully and paid for them. Can I get an amen? amen. All right? We've got to learn how to do this. It's the message of the gospel. Right? And, this is, and why does Paul, even in the first place, you've got to know, okay, being a follower of Jesus is not playing defense. It's playing offense. Right. the whole point, that the reason Jesus points, or Paul points this out and Jesus also pointed out, the reason in this particular passage Paul points it out, is with the expectation that we would stand. Right? You're not the victim. Right? And so he says this, going back to our verse, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, so that you may be able to stand your ground. And just in case, the third time we missed it, and after you've done everything, to stand. That's the expectation. Right, and so on the one hand, there's a tension where you're saying, yeah, don't underestimate Satan. Don't pretend like he's not real, because he is. And he's active. And he's coming at you. And he's going to keep coming at you until Jesus comes back and lays him low for good. So know that. Don't underestimate him. But you know what? Don't overestimate him either. You've got to know, as a follower of Christ, the expectation is you stand. Right? He loses the war. We already know that. And in Christ, when you recognize it, he loses the battle too. Because the authority has been given to us. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the the world. Right? Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come, why? So that they, so that you, my disciples, might have life and have it to the full. That's the expectation. Listen to this, James 4, 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. And what will he do? He will flee from you. That's the only thing he can do. Right, so, just to illustrate this and wrapping up, right? if I was to walk out on normal and A after this service and just stand in the middle of the street and say, Stop! Stop driving! <laughs> right? Some people might humor me at 1st they like, What is with this guy? But eventually you're going to start driving again. And you're like, Why, What makes this guy think <laughs> that he can do that? Right? What a lunatic. I'm not going to Mosaic, ever. <laughs> but if I go out there in a uniform and a badge... And I do that, and I say, stop. Traffic is going to stop. And they're going to stop because of the power and the authority and the name of the government in which I represent that has been given to me. And you have to know, spiritually, that is your standing when it comes to Satan and his crew. He has no power over you whatsoever. All he can do is sing in the strings. He can't even touch you. And when you recognize it, you say, Satan, you have no place in my life. You have no place in my home. You have no place in my family. So in the name of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection, leave. And he flees. It's the only thing he can do. All right, so just know, don't underestimate him. But don't overestimate him either. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Lord God, I just pray against just the lingering skepticism that I know is in some of our hearts. Honestly, this is a hard subject to preach about because I care for the skeptics, and I am one. And this is just one of those issues that's hard, that everything in us culturally just wants to reject this idea, and the whispers keep on coming. This is a load of crap, and you know it. What kind of mythology is this? It's a thing of storybooks. It's not real. Keep living how you're living. Reject it. And Lord, I just pray against that. And I ask whether you would just enlighten our hearts to the reality of what's going on. Make us aware of what's really going on, the crossfire in which we are in, the attack that has been coming, even if we have not seen it up until now. Give us eyes to see the the reality so that we can just stand. Because the enemy has no power over us whatsoever for those of us who are in you so Lord we pray just moving forward Lord for the courage to own this to go running headlong into the darkness with the light of the gospel the truth of who you are how much you genuinely love this world the ongoing mission that you are on give us courage to do that and as we do that As we do the impossible, we continue to expect you to continue to do the impossible. So Lord, we give you what little we bring to the table. We pray these things in your name. Amen.